0: have a tune to Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Welcome back to the Archaeology Fundamentals installment. Now, the specialty topic of historical archaeology is what I'd like to introduce in this week's episode. Archaeologist Kathy Deegan defines historical archaeology as quote, the study of human behavior through material remains for which written history in some way, affects its interpretation end quote. So here in the US, historical archaeology really is the archaeological study of the past 500 years. But you know, if documents record the past, then you know people ask, why should we bother doing the archaeology? Well, put quite simply, Historic records may not be correct all of the time, uh, nor are they objective and nor are they complete accounts of the past. The first bona fide historical archeology span was carried out in the mid 19th century. James Hall, a descendant of Miles Standish, actually located and excavated his ancestor's homestead located in the town of Duxbury, Massachusetts in 1853. And now two years later, Father Felix Martin, who was a Jesuit priest from Montreal, located and excavated the mission outpost of San Marie in 1855. So what Hall and Martin share in common here? Is their use of primary documents to assist in locating these sites and to assist with their analyses? So, this is what makes their work uh, historical archaeology. Um, Now fast forwarding, Um, the period before the 1960s, um, early historical archeology span was focused on restoring old buildings to a particular uh, period of time or even reconstructing old buildings from the ground up uh, based on uh, discovered archeological evidence, but with using new materials. So in fact, they're reproductions, they're like copies. But, um, in fact, early archaeology at Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia uh, took a similar focus. Williamsburg was first excavated by non-archaeologists and people who were architectural historians. So the primary aim of these early uh, digs at Williamsburg was actually just to locate and explore the footprint of main buildings um, with a lot less emphasis on r- revealing the lives of people of the past uh, as historical archaeology does today. So archaeology at this time, pre-1960s, was viewed as, uh, to quote a famous archaeologist Ivernal Hume, a handmaiden to history. Uh, so meaning that archaeology was sort of thought of as history's um, assistant and not its own uh, discipline of its own right. The field of historical uh, archaeology as a true professional specialty within archaeology really began to gain momentum uh, beginning in the 1960s and through the 1970s. Um, and the field really has demonstrated its unique contribution to the study of the past. So, historical archaeology really has been centered on illuminating the lives of what we call disenfranchised groups, people who are marginalized by society and deprived of rights, uh, such as enslaved individuals. Historical archaeology also can resolve disputes. Over historical events, by reconciling primary documents with the archaeological record, and sometimes we're able to demonstrate that historical documents uh, didn't quite get the story straight. The specialty of historical archaeology also provides us with a useful, ana- uh, excuse me, a useful analytical lens to examine the process of uh, colonialism, but also um, colonialism's effects on traditional and Indigenous groups. Historical archaeology is also interested in discovering what we call firsts, so meaning the oldest house, the largest example of something, um, or first and early important people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Contrary to what the chapter reading says though, firsts I would say have become rather popular again within the specialty of historical archaeology. Now there has been a lot of really kind of interesting historical archaeology that's been done over the last 50 years since the field really started to come of age. Archaeologist Bill Kelso and Fraser Neiman's work at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello is among these. So, the focus of their excavation was actually not on Jefferson, uh, but rather the 600 enslaved individuals that he owned throughout his adult life. Archaeologists located uh, the slave quarters called Mulberry Row. And their work really sheds light on the circumstances of enslaved individuals uh, who worked here. So archaeologists have identified faunal remains of both domesticated and undomesticated animals that really kind of hint at how enslaved laborers uh, probably had to supplement whatever rations they were given uh, by hunting. Archaeologists also located uh, pottery sets in Mulberry Row that really uh, were, were rather well worn. They had chips, and certain pieces were missing from full sets. And interestingly, Kelso and uh, uh, Fraser Neiman uh, took this as evidence of what we call hand me down ceramics. Um, So When a set showed too much wear to be displayed in uh, Jefferson's very uh, wealthy, sophisticated home, it seems that uh, pottery was passed down to people uh, he owned who lived at Mulberry Row. The archaeology also identified small structures that are believed to be the quarters of Jefferson's slaves. Now, the structures that dated before 1790 were about 290 square feet and measured about 17 feet by 34 feet. Each pre-1790 structure consisted of two rooms, two fireplaces, and multiple subfloor pits that we think were used to store root vegetables, um, objects of spirituality like charms, Also, objects that would have been considered contraband, like firearms, for example. Um, These quarters are built in the typical style of those that have been identified elsewhere in the region of the Chesapeake and the American Southeast. After 1790, however, um, archeologists observed how structures lived in by enslaved individuals uh, on Mulberry Row seemed to get smaller. So after 1790, archaeologists were locating one room buildings that were on the order of 140 square feet of living space and measured about 12 feet by 14 feet. So initially, archaeologists thought that these smaller spaces were a kind of demotion or punishment but archaeologists are really reconsidering this and are beginning to see it as, are beginning to see the shift to a one-family home uh, with more privacy and control over the domestic sphere. But interestingly, these upgrades to Mulberry Row after 1790 actually coincide when other states are freeing enslaved laborers. So When considered within this kind of historical context, archeologists are now kind of thinking that maybe this was Jefferson's small attempt at making the individuals he owned a little bit more content. Um, you know, I want to emphasize though, that this would have been a pretty small consolation, right? Um, as they were still owned individuals who were forced to labor and were still thought of as property. No change in house size or structure would be able to ease that kind of burden. Another powerful example of historical archaeology is New York City's African Burial Ground, located at 290 Broadway. Slavery was something that was like really deeply ingrained north of the Mason-Dixon line. A lot of people don't realize that. So by 1664, It's actually estimated that 40% of New York City's entire population was enslaved laborers. And by the late 18th century, New York City actually had the largest population of enslaved laborers, only second to Charleston, South Carolina. So in the 18th century in New York City, there are all these sort of racial codes that were pushed and one of them uh, was that it was illegal to bury people of color in white churchyards. So uh, a separate space was carved out from a tract of uh, pretty undesirable deserted land that today we call the African Burial Ground. And we think um, about 15,000 people were ultimately buried there between the years 1712 and 1790. Well, um, construction actually threatened the site in the late 80s and early 1990s, um, which did prompt archaeological excavations at 290 Broadway. Archaeologists Ed Rutch and Michael uh, Michael Blakey excavated the remains of 419 individuals and the bioarchaeological analysis tells a really sobering story. Fifty percent of decedents uh, seem to have died before their 12th birthday. Whereas in contrast, uh, white people living contemporaneously in New York City were actually eight times more likely to live past 55 years. So we're seeing a lot of evidence of enlarged muscle attachments, which are these kind of bony attachments that grow um, from overworked muscles. We're seeing uh, specific lesions on bone that's characteristic of muscles being literally ripped and torn away from the bro- from the bone. And we're also seeing um, cranial and spinal fractures in the burial population. Um, we're also getting bits of evidence of what we call periostitis, which is an inflammation of the connective tissue surrounding bone. Um, this was identified on some human remains there. Um, and periostitis often happens when a severe injury does not heal properly and actually becomes infected. We're also seeing evidence on some decedents of what we call sabershin. shin. Um, saber shin refers to this flattening or bowing of uh, the shin bone, which is caused by yaws. Um, yaws is a type of tropically acquired illness that can misshapen in bones in the body. Um, yaws is caused by a bacteria found in the tropics. And archaeologists have taken uh, this as a bit of evidence that enslaved laborers were quote unquote seasoned in the Caribbean before being forced to work in cooler climates like those in New York City. So. You know, all of this evidence together really just tells us um, that enslaved laborers uh, in New York City were worked to the margins of human capacity and beyond. Um, I do want to mention just a a few other findings, though, here before we move on to another site. There are some findings at the African burial ground that really speak to um, traditional cultural practices that were maintained. Um, one example being the African custom of filing teeth, and we're also seeing evidence of certain kind of cultural symbols. One example actually being um, tacks that were arranged into a heart-shaped design, and this was identified on the lid of a wooden coffin. Um, Some archaeologists are thinking that this uh, symbol may actually be what we call a sankofa, uh, which is a symbol that's connected uh, to the West African Akan proverb. Um, Another classic example of historical archaeology has been the investigation of the Battle of Little Bighorn. So in 1876, General Armstrong Custer was uh, was dispatched to relocate bands of Native Americans onto reservations, Um, but rather unsurprisingly, they were met with a great deal of resistance, which culminated into the Battle of Little Bighorn. Now, no U.S. soldier survived the battle, so there was no U.S. soldier to give their account of the events that unfolded at Little Bighorn, but you know, curiously enough, there have been a number of artistic renderings of the battle. Um, And here we're interested in one that was painted by a Native American and another one that was painted uh, by an American. So the uh, painting titled Battle of the Little Bighorn by Kicking Bear uh, in 1898 depicts this, you know, very graphic, bloody scene with Custer's men strewn all over the battlefield. The 1899 rendering of uh, of Battle Little Bighorn by Samuel Paxton, which is the more famous image of the two, actually portrays Custer's men standing bravely, proud, and glorious, uh, surrounding a very triumphant-looking General Custer. Um, the American version uh, is more sanitized. Uh, there's really no gore, um, and it captures what we, you know, may stereotypically think of Custer's grand last stand. Um, you know, I think it would be very interesting if you have a few moments to do a quick Google image search and just spend a few minutes looking at the details of each painting. So this way. You'll really get a nice sense that each image uh, that we're talking about here uh, literally paints a markedly different picture of what the scene of the battle may have been like. So this brings us to the archaeology. Archaeologists Doug Scott and Richard Fox wanted to know which of these two artistic portrayals of Little Bighorn was accurate. Was it the more famous image uh, painted by Paxton or the lesser known scene uh, represented by Kicking Bear? So the archeologists conducted a very basic metal detector survey of the battlefield. And what they actually did was map the locations where metal artifacts were detected. So they would put a flag in the ground where they found things like metal gun parts, belt buckles, buttons, horsewares, and bullets. The mapping actually pretty much spoke for itself. The mapping demonstrated that there there's no evidence of skirmish lines. Um, skirmish lines leave a very distinct trail of cartridges, um, but evidence of this was uh, simply not seen in the archaeological record. Um, actually, the archaeology does seem to indicate that close combat came very quickly and it probably consisted of hand-to-hand combat because few uh, pistols and rifles or parts of were located on the battlefield. So we begin to get this sense from the archaeology that the end of Little Bighorn was probably not as glorious as it's been portrayed in Paxton's famous representation. So in fact, You know, it seems like the archaeology shows that Custer was probably caught off guard by Native Americans, and the end was very bloody and chaotic, uh, much more akin to Kicking Bear's representation of Custer's last stand. This does bring us to the end of today's episode on historical archaeology. Next week's episode, though, will treat historic preservation um, and cultural resource management which are two very important industries that have actually really made so much archaeology that's uh, taken place in the U.S. just possible. So please make sure to tune in next week um, to learn why. Thanks for listening to The Fundamentals of Archaeology on Cultural Corner with Dr. Carey. Have a great week.